Chapter Seven, Part One of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Training Sally Waters, Part One. The crew had finished their committee work, had groomed the horses, swept the main floor, brightened harness, brass, and steel work, and washed, oiled, and polished the big truck till it shone like a gigantic toy. Sergeant Pym was in the sitting-room above stairs, with three of the company, stretching his legs under a game of poker, and when he was not growling at a luck which duplicated his discard, always in his draw, he was calling out sarcasms at young Waters for the dust he was raising in sweeping the sitting-room floor. As the merry Andrew of the company, Pym alternated between fits of clownishness, in which he sacrificed all dignity for laughter, and fits of a sour wit in which he endeavoured to regain what he had lost, by punishing familiarity as insolence and flaying an innocent victim as a peace-offering to his self-respect. Waters had been such a victim of such a mood, but as the freshman of the crew he had been silent under the hazing. He had endured it for two days, and even now, as long as Pym contented himself with such remarks as, "'Sally, you ought to've been a white wings.' your style of sweepin' ain't indoor sweepin', it's Broadway in a forty-mile breeze." Waters continued to work without more than frowning at the laughter of the men. But when Pym lost on a call to show cards, spat contemptuously, and called out, "'Waters! What a name to squirt on a fire!' The recruit wheeled on him, and retorted hoarsely, "'What's the matter with Pym for a name?' Pym did not look up from his dealing of the cards. "'Pym?' he repeated cheerfully. "'Well, there's just one or two things the matter with Pym, Sally. Pym's no name for corner saloon politics.' And this was a reference to Dry Dime Dolan, an uncle of Waters, and a ward politician whose influence, according to the gossip of the truck-house, had pushed Waters into the department. Waters leaned on his broom and knit his level eyebrows in a glare at Pym. The sergeant regarded his hand of cards. The men about him were in a broad grin. "'Firemen are like the aristocracy for ancestors these days,' Pym said. "'Only it ain't a grandfather, it's an uncle.' Waters broke at him with an oath. "'You blank old barnacle!' he cried. "'You ought to've been scraped out of here long ago. You're too blank ignorant to get a promotion yourself.' and because you can't get along, you're sore on anyone else that does." Pym replied, "'It's slow climbin' when the ladder's full and the probationers are goin' up the back stairs.' Waters threw down his broom and struck the table with his clenched fist. "'By God!' he screamed, in a young man's cracked voice of wrath. "'I'll go up your ladder over your shoulders. Wait, and I'll put my heel between your teeth when I get up you old black number, you spavined old cripple, you!" Pym smiled. "'Well, well,' he said, "'will you now? Whiskey's a power in the land, sure enough. They say some Third Avenue brands'll put out a fire.' The saloon of Dry Dime Dolan was on Third Avenue, but Waters did not answer. He stood with the echo of his own high voice in his ears, staring at the face of a fireman, in whose shamed and pitying smile he read that he had made himself ridiculous. He turned with a growl of profanity, 
kicked his broom into a corner, and went below stairs, his mouth set in an ugly snarl of anger. The other men at the table had learned the wisdom of the truck-house maxim, never butt into an argument until it's a fight, and they had sat through the quarrel without a word. Even now only Billy Parr dared to remonstrate with Pym. "'What's the matter, Jim?' he asked mildly. "'What have you got against the youngster?' "'Me?' Pym said. "'Got against him?' "'Why, bless my eyes, I got nothing against him. I knew his dad in the days when we were six-year-olds, and just to help the old goosenecks paint the fires green down the Bowery. He's all right if he's got any of his old man in him. But he's got to learn that he ain't any better for being a grafter, neither. And he's got to learn it before he'll be any good in this crew, at that. You leave Sally and me alone. We're conducting a select school of instruction for one. Parr, however, did not leave Waters and him alone. He remonstrated with Waters privately. "'What's eatin' ye, anyway?' he said. "'Pim don't mean any harm. It's just his way.' "'Is it?' Waters replied. "'Well, he'll learn a new way before I'm done with him. I'll make him eat dirt for poundin' me the way he's been doin'. He walked away with his chin up. Parr went back to Pim. "'Look here now, Jim,' he said. "'You leave Waters alone. You take my advice and leave Waters alone.' Pym laughed. "'What's the matter now?' Parr answered solemnly. "'That's all right. I'm giving you a straight tip. You leave Waters alone.' "'Well, say,' Pym protested, "'what's the use of you coming round here with a holler like this? It ain't me that's worrying Waters. He's been going round here talking politics like a cart-tail spellbinder, until—' "'It ain't my fault if he's an unlicked cub, is it?' "'Tain't my fault.' "'Look here now, Jim,' Parr said, confidentially. "'Water's got a pull. There ain't no sense putting yourself up against it this way. Leave him alone.' Pym reached out an emphatic fist and wagged his thumb, with a double-jointed jerkiness under Parr's nose. "'Look here now, Billy,' he mocked him. "'When I play spaniel and wag my tail so, every time I see a grafter, whistle to me and I'll come.' He turned on his heel with that, and went downstairs to his stretch of desk duty. His bad mood persisted. Sitting there, beneath the jigger, he tattooed thoughtfully on the blotter and chewed his cud of bitterness. He had come to the department twenty years before, because he needed a regular salary to support his wife. In his third year he had distinguished himself at a fire by saving the lives of two women. He had hoped for an immediate recognition of his services, but he had been approached by the henchman of a ward politician with an itching palm. He had refused to grease the wheels, and the result had been that he had been placed on the roll of merit for saving life, without personal risk. There the recognition had ended. He had been marked as a man not in favour with the powers, and he had climbed up the grades from eight hundred dollars a year to fourteen hundred, slowly and obscurely. Now he was still a blue shirt, a sergeant by courtesy of the department's rules, but with no outlook. The tide of promotion had swept by and left him stranded. He was old enough to be a battalion chief, but too old to become a lieutenant. Add to all this that he had not the textbook learning necessary to pass a civil service examination, 
even if he were recommended for promotion. That ambition was dead in him. Waters had called him a barnacle. Well, Waters, he told himself, was probably right. He had but one consolation. He had been independent. He had paid no blackmail to the ring. He had never cringed to his superiors. And though he had played the fool among the men, it was because he was vain of his natural wit and his pride lived on laughter. He wrote again and again on a blank sheet of paper, J. Pym, with the J superimposed on the P, to make Jim Pym. And he looked at himself in that name and saw himself a failure, an odd character of a comic fame in his company, but beyond all hope of promotion. Jim Pym. A man in an apron running in from the street caught at his waist on the chain that hung across the doorway and cried, There's a fire! Say, there's a big fire down the street! waving his hand wildly toward the waterfront. Men came running out from behind the apparatus. Pym put his head out the door and saw a light smoke far down at the foot of the street. The man shouted in his ear, That's it! Pym thrust him back from the doorway, slipped the catch on the chain, and turned to sound a still alarm on the electric button below the gong. The three horses burst from their stalls with hoofs thudding on the planks. Before they had reached their places, Waters and the firemen from the sitting-room had hit the floor. By the time Pym and Gallagher had backed the horses into position, the driver, in his seat, had released the harness with a jerk on the reins. Captain Meaghan cried from the sidewalk, "'All right!' The horses strained against their collars, and Pym caught the step of the truck as the wheels scraped past his toes. When he got his helmet on his head, he glanced at Waters, who was on the other side of the truck, and saw him excitedly fighting his way into his turnout coat. Pym smiled. "'I've put a bat in his belfry,' he thought. When they drew near the fire, he recognized the burning building as one of the few tenements left in that district between the waterfront street of sailors' boarding-houses and the warehouses that had crowded them out. He saw also that the alarm had come in late, for the smoke was now pouring out of all the windows of the third floor, and the occupants of the upper stories were throwing pans, bedding, and furniture into the street. A crowd had gathered at a safe distance to laugh and enjoy the excitement. Lieutenant Gallagher turned to Pym. "'Send in an alarm,' he ordered, and Pym dropped from the step at a street corner to run for a firebox a block away. He doubled back on a steady lope, with a policeman lumbering along behind him. The arrival of the company had drawn a crowd that blocked the street. He shouldered his way through them, caught up an axe from the truck, and darted into the doorway of the burning house. He met the crew pouring down from the upper landing. "'Whole floor's afire,' the first man told him. He turned back with them. The police had cleared the sidewalk. The rain of bedding from above had ceased. The women who had been throwing it out had found that the fire had cut them off from the stairs, and they leaned out the windows, screaming and weeping hysterically. One fat Italian matron had straddled the sill. She kicked at the wall with a shoeless foot, as if she were going to jump. Captain Meaghan roared at her. "'Damn you!' You jump down here, and I'll have you put in the lock-up. She gaped, silenced. He cried to the squad of men with whom Waters was standing. Get up there with your ladders. 
he called to his lieutenant. "'Gallagher, open up the roof! Take ropes with ye!' Gallagher snapped his fingers at Pym, Parr, and two of the other men. They buckled on their life-belts, picked out a coil of line and a light ladder, took axes, hooks, and crowbars, and disappeared in the door of the adjoining house just as Waters caught the hook of his scaling-ladder on the sill of the first-story window and went up the pole of it nimbly. Captain Meaghan said, "'Steady there!' Waters straddled the sill of the first window, with his left leg in the room, turned the hook of the ladder out from him, raised the forty-pounder with a sure arm, his hands far apart, his left hand uppermost to steady the weight, and put the hook in the second-story window with the precision of a timed drill. The hook of the ladder below him touched his toes as he stood up. "'Good enough,' Captain Meaghan said. "'Good enough. Steady there!' Waters had the top of his ladder in the smoke of the third-story window before the man who was following him had fairly gripped his sill with his knees. "'Shake yourself there!' Meaghan called to the ladder. "'Don't let your leader get away from you like that. Who is that first man?' he asked the remainder of the squad. "'Waters,' they said. Waters was sitting in the belch from the third-story window. He called down something unintelligible. "'Go up! Go up!' Meaghan ordered. Waters went up. The head of his ladder rose steadily along the red brick wall until the fat Italian woman caught it at arm's length. She shook it and yelled. Meaghan bellowed, "'Hi! You! Drop that!' She attempted to put her foot on it, and in doing so she released her hold. Waters wrenched the ladder free, jabbed it up with both hands, and struck her with the hook with such force that she fell back into the room. Before she could get righted he was in the window. She attempted to throw her arms about him. He held her back with a hand at her throat, and she fought like a drowning woman. Captain Meaghan, stamping in the gutter, bawled, "'Good enough! Good enough! Get her down now, boys! All up there! All up!' The chain of ladders was completed from the ground to Waters, and the men clambered up to their stations. Waters caught the frantic woman about the waist, and despite the stranglehold she took of his neck, despite her screams and her kicking, and despite her two hundred pounds, he got her down to the man below him, with the loss only of his helmet, which she knocked off when he closed with her. She was passed down from man to man, struggling more and more feebly as she descended, flapping in her voluminous and fluttering skirts. She collapsed breathless on the sidewalk. Waters went back for the next woman, who came quietly. The smoke was thickening from the third-story window, so that the man below Waters had to go down beneath it and take his station there. As the last woman was passed down, her dress caught fire in a spurt of flame, and the firemen beat it out with their hands. Waters went back to the fourth-story window. He climbed in through it. A fire-engine came blowing shrilly down the street, with its tender turning the corner behind it. They were slow enough, Captain Meaghan growled. He was watching the edge of the roof for Gallagher. "'Get your thirty-five-foot ladders up,' he ordered his squad, and they began to get out the heavy ladders to carry the lines of hose. He watched the roof for Gallagher's squad. He heard the blows of axes on a scuttle and the crash of glass in a skylight. Then Pym appeared on the cornice with a line in his hand, and looked down at the flame below him. 
A puff of smoke burst from the fourth-story window through which Waters had entered. Captain Meaghan waved to Pym to get his line over the cornice. "'There's a man in there!' he shouted. "'Waters!' Pym ran back to tie his rope. Gallagher and the others of the squad, who had been making smoke vents in the roof, had found that the fire was fierce in the rear of the building, where both the third and fourth stories were ablaze. When they got the scuttle off, the smoke rose in a great woof. It was impossible to descend into it. They turned at Pym's shout from the cornice and ran to help him loop the lifeline to a chimney. "'Waters is in down there,' he said. "'He's cut off. We'll have to haul him up, darn fool!' He took several turns of the rope around the shaft of the snap-hook on his life-belt, dropped over the cornice with the slack of the rope drawn over his thigh, and slid down deftly to the window. "'I put a bat in his belfry all right, all right,' he was muttering. He lifted Waters' scaling-ladder from the sill and raised it to catch on the cornice. Then, having released himself from the rope, he groped his way into the hot smoke of the room and stumbled against a table. He edged around it and kicked a rocking-chair. He dropped to his hands and knees and crept forward with his face to the floor to catch whatever air there might be along the oilcloth. He heard a groan. He lay flat and listened. It was repeated ahead of him, to the right. He scuttled across quickly in that direction and bumped his helmet against a closed door, the hall door, as he guessed, from the location of the stairway. He rattled the knob. The door was locked with a latch-lock but the latch was on his side. He pulled it open and fell back from a burst of flame. There was someone lying on the floor against the balustrade of the stairway. He turned the leaf of his helmet over his face, darted into the heat, and heard the forgotten door-click shut behind him. He understood then how Waters had been trapped. There was a spring-hinge on the door. It was locked. He kicked furiously at the panels, holding his breath against a heat that seared his eyes and cracked his lips, that dried his body till it seemed his skin was a suit of itching wool on him, that set the blood beating in his head as if his skull would burst. He kicked frantically at the door, turned his back on it, and pounded at it with his heel. His lungs were fighting with him for a breath of the deadly heat, and his head was reeling and his knees were weak. He knotted his muscles in one last gathering of his last strength, and, with a despairing kick, put his heel through the panel. He kicked it out clean with a weaker blow, fell forward on waters, dragged him across the boards, put the private's bare head through the opening, and lay down himself with his head on his arms at the mercy of the flames. Parr and Gallagher found them there unconscious, and took them out to the roof. They were carried down through the adjoining house, burned and blackened, but still alive. They were taken to the emergency ward of a hospital in the one ambulance. Their burns were dressed together, and they were put to bed in two cots, side by side. It was there that Pym dismissed the class in his select school of instruction two weeks later, when Waters was leaving the hospital, cured and the sergeant still lay, swathed like a mummy, in his cot. Waters had been trying to thank him without quite forgiving him for his truck-house persecution. Pym had put aside this clumsy show of gratitude with a pathetic half-smile that trembled between the burned bristle of his upper lip 
and the medicated cotton that covered his chin. "'I guess we gave you a bad two days down at the house,' he said in an old man's voice, thin and weak with illness. "'No harm done, eh? None meant. Well, good luck, Waters. Can't shake hands. They've got me in ten-ounce gloves.' He spread his bandaged hands on the coverlet. Waters would not accept this dismissal. He said, reddening, "'I hope you'll be back at the house.' Pim rolled his head on the pillow. "'No,' he said slowly. "'I'm out. I'm down and out. They've got me on my back. That's right. They've got me down.' It was the sum of two weeks of bitter reflection two weeks of looking back on a life of disappointed hopes and lost ambitions. "'Waters,' he said, "'you've got a pull. Use it. Use it for all it's worth. You'll have to crawl to a lot of dubs, but you have to do that in any business. It's the way to get on. I tried the other way, and they get the lap on you all right.' Waters said, "'What you call a grafter? You roasted me good and hot on that. And it wasn't true, neither.' I didn't graft. I was a fool, Pym said. I always was. If I had my life to live over, well, I guess I'd do the same thing again. That's me. That's Jim Pym. But if you want the last word on Jim Pym, he's been a fool. Young and old, he's been a fool. Oh, I guess not, Waters said half-heartedly. Pym shook his head but did not reply. Waters felt himself incapable of further consolation. He shifted his weight from foot to foot. He fumbled with his hat. "'Well, good-bye,' he said huskily. Pym licked his dry lips. "'Good-bye, Waters,' he whispered. "'Take care of yourself.'" End of chapter 7, part 1